You know, as we jump into this week of our One Hit Wonder series, we've been talking simply about how the Bible is made up of 66 different books, uh, 1,189 different chapters, but five of those books are just one chapter. And it's these five One Hit Wonders that we've been looking at as a church. And so we've already looked at three of them. Today, we're going to be jumping all the way to the back of the Bible. Like if you have your Bibles with you, just turn almost to the end and then come back a little bit. We're going to be looking at 3 John together. So 3 John, if you have your Bibles, jump right over to 3 John. And this is the third letter written by the Apostle John. And it's actually, its big claim to fame is it's the shortest chapter in all, or the shortest of the books in all of the Bible. It's the shortest book there is, which is why we read it completely. Uh, Bill, thank you for reading that for us. So like last week, when we look at this letter, we talked about how it's from John the Elder and that it's not an age thing that John's kind of saying, hey, I'm the old guy, but it's more his role thing. I'm a person who's in authority over these churches and it is my job as an elder to shepherd what's going on in these churches to help them. And so this letter that he's writing is not necessarily going to be written to the church like the last one was to guard against false teaching. This letter is going to be written to one of his friends named Gaius, okay? So let's look at verse 2 where he says, Dear friend, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. This is a great verse to kick off this book and it's probably not that big of a deal when you read it, but this verse has actually caused and promoted a major false teaching in our culture and in the church. Now, it wasn't for the church that John was writing. They didn't pick up what happened from this verse, but it is for us. And why I want to point this out is even as we read the Bible together and it's my job to, to try to help unpack this and keep it relevant for us and, and accurate. Our hope is that we're reading scripture on our own. That's my hope here at Crossbridge, that you're reading scripture on your own and not just banking on Sundays to be good. Like, oh, that's good. I'm good for the week. When you're reading the Bible, there are some techniques and some tools that you can use when you run into things that are like wrestling with, that you're, that you're struggling with. And one of the most important principles that I could ever pass on to you when you are reading the Bible is simply this. When you run to something you don't understand, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay, let Scripture interpret Scripture. When you don't know what something's saying, the best thing that you could do is not jump on Google. Okay, do not jump out there and be like, what's this verse mean? Because you will find 10 different things about it. You just need to ask the question, is this thing that I'm wrestling with found anywhere else in the Bible? Is what I'm trying to figure out here taught about by Jesus? Is it mentioned by the prophets? Is, Is it in the Torah? Is it in the letters that are written by these different apostles? I mean, if it's mentioned somewhere else, that's how we're going to interpret. Does that make sense, using the Bible to interpret the Bible? This is the best way to interpret things. So let's read this verse again, but I want to read you the verse in a different version that kind of started some of the problems with this new theology, we'll call it. It's gonna, we're going to look at it in the New King James translation, which says this, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. 
Now, this verse has actually been used to teach and to promote something called the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel. How many of you have ever heard of those before? Okay, a lot of you. Okay, um, simply put, here's what this theology or this teaching says, that the closer you walk with Jesus, the healthier and the wealthier you'll be. You will prosper both monetarily and physically when you walk close with Jesus. And it was not really thought about or taught so much until there was this part-time preacher who was out in Oklahoma who was married to the daughter of a pastor, and he was really struggling. His Bible fell open as he went to like, oh, here it is, and this verse pops up. He reads it, and then he turns to his wife, and, and his name is Oral Roberts. That's his name. And he turns to his wife, and he says, have you ever read this? And she's like, no. Oh my gosh, this, this, is, this is, if we follow God, we're going to prosper. He wants to do that. And so she's like, I agree. He went out and bought a brand new Buick that day. And then as soon as he got in it, he felt the Lord telling him, it's your job to go heal people. Go heal people. And when big personalities got behind this type of teaching and they were able to be promoted, not just on radio, but television came into play and they got their medium, this spread all over the place. That the closer you follow Jesus, the wealthier and the healthier you'll be. If this was John's purpose when writing this, you would see this all over the Bible, wouldn't you? If we're using scripture to interpret scripture and we're going to put that principle into practice, you would see things all over. It would be a big deal throughout scripture. You would see it in the teachings of Jesus. But instead, what we read often from Jesus is especially even the way he looks at the Old Testament and throughout the New, is when you follow Jesus, you can expect suffering and persecution. <laughs> These are what we sign up for as his followers, that, that physical prosperity and complete healing. These are only promised to us. When Jesus Christ, our King, returns to rule, and we are with him in paradise. This is when complete healing comes. Can God bring prosperity and healing now? Absolutely. And we believe he does. But is it based on if you're walking close to Jesus? No, not at all. It's really, really important that we do not pull verses out of context when they are found in the Bible. Just like we talked about last week, as followers of Jesus, we must conform our lives to Scripture rather than twist Scripture to suit our lives. We don't get to do that. We take scripture where it is. So when you're reading the Bible, do not take things out of context. And third, you know, John 2, you know what this is? This is just a greeting. That's all this is. It's greeting from one guy to another guy, and there's nothing else in this that has to do with wealth and health. Are, are you with me? So if you hear that being preached, that is not biblical. Um, it's not accurate. You have to read that in there. And so let's look at the rest of the letter, though, because it's kind of cool. Um, the rest of the letter is kind of a, a, a the way that John's going to deal with a problem. And have you ever dealt with a problem with the sandwich approach? Are you familiar with the sandwich approach? 
Um, it, it's great. I'm not talking about like avocado toast type sandwich, you know, where it's like all open-faced and exposed. You see what you're eating. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sandwich approach like a nice MLT, you know, mutton, lettuce, tomato, and the mutton is nice and lean and the tomato is ripe. It's right. It, it, it's a good sandwich if you have bread on the bottom, you got bread on the top, and then the meat of the sandwich right in that center. I guess you could put avocado in there if you're vegetarian and you're there. But when you have to tell someone something tough, this is a great approach. You lay in something nice and easy and good for them, encouragement. And then you throw in the thing that's a little tough. And then you kind of close it out with some encouragement. It's the sandwich approach. Have you ever used this? If not, try it. It's great, especially for sensitive people. Okay? Um, and... and <laughs> I say this because uh, this is exactly how I see it when John writes this letter, okay? Verses 5 to 8, this is the first slice of bread, right? We've got the real uh, encouragement to this guy named Gaius, who is his friend. And then verses 9 to 10, this is the meat of the letter. This is the issue that John needs to address with the church. And uh, they're not critiques on Gaius, which is great. They're just a strong reprimand for a leader in the church named Diotrephes. And the warning is going to be crucial for us to hear in that meat section. And then verses 11 to 12 are the second slice of bread. More encouragement for Gaius and this other guy named Demetrius. And so it's kind of like a sandwich approach. Now, every time you eat a sandwich, I hope you think of Third John, okay? I hope you remember this and it sticks in your brain. Um, so let's just look at this. Are you ready to eat together? Let's do it. Let's jump to verse 5. It says this, Dear friends, dear friend, you are being faithful to God when you care for the traveling teachers who pass through, even though they're strangers to you. They've told the church here of your loving friendship. Please continue providing for such teachers in a manner that pleases God, for they are traveling for the Lord, and they accept nothing from people who are not believers. So we ourselves should support them so that we can be their partners as they teach the truth. So John commends Gaius here in two ways in this first slice of bread. The first thing he kind of commends him on is his hospitality, all right? It's his hospitality. John thanks him for loving and for serving like a follower of Jesus should. You see, in the first century, hospitality towards strangers was considered a virtue. This was something that was celebrated. It was linked um, always to the temple or to the synagogue. So when a traveling teacher came in, they would stay at a place that was connected to the synagogue or to the temple, and that's where they stayed while they taught, and then when they moved to the next place, they'd stay there. The church, as it began to develop in the first century, did not meet in the temple or in the synagogue. They met in each other's homes, but they took this principle, and they were like, well, if the teachers stayed at the temple, then we do church in our house. So where should they stay? In our house. And hospitality became this thing that defined the church so early on. It was a practice that was at the very heart of who the church was, especially because many of these teachers were pushed out of their homes. They were not part of a family unit, and they did not make money as part of their family. If you wanted to stay in an inn, they were expensive, they were uncomfortable, they were dangerous. So if you were a teacher on the move, you could expect to receive hospitality as you went to a local church community in any place in the known world at the time. And you see this throughout the New Testament. Teachers show up, they are cared for. And now if you're thinking, I'm glad I don't live then, because what do you do if some random dude shows up and he's like, yeah, I teach Jesus. And you're like, sweet, stay at my house. That would be a little weird, wouldn't it? I mean, how do you know who's kind of legit and who's just 
you know, creeping and looking to freeload on your house? Well, the teachers all carried around letters of recommendation. It's actually some of the letters that we have in the New Testament. Letters of recommendation. These super well-known apostles and teachers would write letters of recommendation for a teacher, and when they showed up to a town, it would be like, hey, look, this guy approves of me, and they'd be like, all right, he's legit. Come on in. You can have a, a, a place here. You actually see this in 2 Corinthians. It's wonderful. Titus is carrying the letter. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he's like, listen, Titus and all the guys that are traveling with him, amazing. You can house them. I give them my stamp of approval. And they're like, oh, cool. Come on in then. It's totally good. So hospitality and showing hospitality is the first thing that John commends him on. The second thing is that not just housing the teachers, but supporting and partnering with them, okay? He supports any partners with them. He wants to share in their ministry. Gaius loves being a part of what they are doing and furthering the gospel of Jesus. And he highlights this, John highlights this in verse 8 when he says, so we ourselves should support them so that we can be their partners as they teach the truth. I love this. Gaius isn't moving. He's in the city he's in, and yet he's still able to partner, not just in his city with this church, but with these teachers as they go. The Greek word that, that John uses here when he mentions that word partners is all about being like a fellow worker. If, uh, you know, it's the 21st century equivalent. Actually, we, we get our English word synergy from this word. It's, you know, like the big business word, when things work together and, uh, and no one knows what it really means. But it means when, when you've got people, actions, resources, they all come together and they're not in competition with each other. They are working together. John loves and celebrates that Gaius is supporting the work of the church. He's opening his home, he's giving of his resources, and he's partnering with these teachers. I believe that we have the same calling today because, come on, let's be real. If Christians don't support the work of ministry, who's going to? John doesn't say, oh, the, the world should provide and, and give you tax breaks. The world should, should help cover the costs of doing... No, he says, if, this, if you guys weren't given, this isn't happening. And so the same thing is true for us as, as 21st century followers of Jesus. We have a call to partner with each other and with the church to see the gospel furthered wherever we are. We do this together, not separate. And so John doesn't expect the world to do it. He says it's the responsibility of the people in the church to partner together for the church. That's what we do. So Gaius is showing hospitality. He's partnering. And then we're going to get some meat. Here's the mutton. You ready? This is a, it's some tough words that John says. In verse 9, he says, I wrote to the church about this, but Diotrephes, who loves to be the leader, refuses to have anything to do with us. When I come, I'm going to report some of the things that he's doing and the evil accusations he's made, making against us. Not only does he refuse to welcome the traveling teachers, he also tells others not to help them. And when they do help, he puts them out of the church. John just highlights hospitality, partnering, support. And now he tells Gaius, listen, I, I, I tried to tell the church this. I tried to write letters, but they're, they're not getting them. I've tried to send teachers that I trust, but they're not welcomed. And the problem is just one person, one person. 
Diotrephes. It is amazing how many issues one problem person can cause, isn't it? If you work on a team, you're part of a band, you have, whether it's in school or at work, to work with other people, you know how much trouble one problem person can cause. Are you with me? Okay, if you've experienced this, let me know that a little bit. Okay. I just need to make sure that we're on the same page here because in, in just two verses, John completely blows this guy up. And Diotrephes, he says, he demonstrates love, but it is not the hospitality and partnership kind. He demonstrates love for leadership. That's what he wants. He loves to be a leader, according to verse 9. He loves this, and he has self-appointed himself as the leader, not just a leader. And his love for leadership means he wants the spotlight. He wants the influence. And what it's doing is it's isolating and it is destroying the church. And I like this because John's like, there is so much more I could tell you. Um, I, I just, I want to tell you all the things. I mean, look at verse 13. I love what he says. He says, I have so much more to say to you, but I don't want to write it with pen and ink. For I hope to see you soon. And then we're going to talk face to face. Right? If this is today, I imagine John like texting Gaius going, dude, Diotrephes won't respond to my text. He's like, what? You texted him? What did you text him about? What's wrong? <gasps> Can't text it. Will call. Will call? No one wants the will call. <laughs> call me? No, no, no. People only in their 40s do that. We don't do that. And I'm like, no. This is deep. He's like, I can't have this recorded or screenshot. I don't want this in pen and ink because what you have with Diotrephes is this guy is a rogue leader and leaders like this cause a ton of damage in the church. He liked to be the one in charge and controlling things and he wants to be first in all things. He rejects the church structure that exists. He blows off John as the elder who's basically overseeing and who he's accountable to in this church. He's blowing up other leaders in the church and in the region who are coming as teachers. He was personally, personally rejecting the letters of recommendation that came, the letters of instruction. And he told the people in the church not to help these other teachers. Isn't that crazy? It is clear that he is protective and territorial about my church. It's my position. It's my role. It's my influence. And he even starts spreading lies about John and these other teachers to the people in this community to try to get them to question John's authority. And I'm just going to say this as clear as I can this is a big deal. Okay, this is a really big deal. I am begging you to be very, very careful about how you talk about leaders. Okay, you don't have to like everything that they do, but be very careful about how you talk about leaders because I will tell you this, especially in the context of a local church, it gets back to them. It gets back to them. Nothing is as secret as you think it is. In over 20 years of ministry, I have heard stories about myself. 
I have heard things that I have said from other people that I have never said. People assume my intentions without ever asking me. And then they share those things with other people. It gets back to me. What I'm grateful for is the Lord has been very kind and gracious in my life. And there have been quite a few people who I believe see my character and see the character that I'm hoping is more Christ-like, even though I struggle, and go, that doesn't sound like Jimmy. Are you sure he said that? Well, that's what I heard. I think we should ask him. And if you have come to me and saying, is this something you have said? All I want to do is say, thank you, thank you, thank you for obeying the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 18. Thank you for asking if that was what I said or if that was my intention. It gets back to your pastors. And if you do this from, you know that, I'll just tell you straight up. If you come from a different church and you come to Crossbridge and you want to like badmouth and, and talk crap about another church, it's not going to work here. We love our other churches in this area. We don't always agree with them, but we love them. We pray for them. We bless them. We do not compete with them. This is a hard job. I'm going to extend grace before judgment. I hope you do the same with me, please. So here's what makes this really difficult with diatrophies, though, is if you challenged him, he kicked you out, right? If, if you challenged him, he kicked you out. Leaders and people like this, they absolutely destroy the church, and they continue to do, to, do so today. They're eager for power. They're eager for authority. They ignore the truth. They ignore the Bible. They sow dissension. They sow division. And if they don't get their way at one church, they go to another and try there. This is what they do. People who badmouth other local churches, it's, it, they should not last long at the church that they are at. If you're not heard in one place, there could be something behind that. It may be worth exploring. I'm learning that people like this are usually, I, I no longer hate on them as much as I did, and that was something I had to confess. I now feel more compassion and more, I grieve for them because they're usually pretty self-deceived and unaware. Right? And, and this is true of a lot of problem people, and I get it's maybe a judgment, but they don't really see a lot of the issues that they carry outside of themselves. They're not living with eyes locked on others. They're living with a me mentality of this is what I do, this is what I get. So they're preserving and protecting themselves, so that's where their eyes are. How their behavior always affects others and impacts others doesn't really always occur to them. It's not that they don't care, they just don't see it all the time. Pride, greed, control, these are spiritual blinders that I believe can cost every single one of us who lead. This is true of pastors, elders, life group leaders, youth and CB kids leaders, pretty much anyone in a position of leadership. We need to watch for pride, greed, and control because these spirits can blind us to the impact that we have on other people around us. Have you ever approached someone with a new idea or a new thought on moving forward and they're like, you know, you guys, I just want to, I'm curious about why we're doing this. And then they snap at you really bad. And they like yell at you and they come at you and you're like, whoa, you know, I'm doing this for Jesus' sake. That's why we do this. This is the way we've always done it and we're going to continue to do it that way. And you're like, whoa, -hoo -hoo. I, I, I just asked why we use one ply and not two. Like, I was trying to save some money, you know, but that's the way we do it. You see what this is, is 
Self-deception leads us to thinking that like sometimes we carry all the weight. We're the only spiritual ones who have this. That is a deep, dark, troubling place as a leader to go. And this is exactly how I see diatrophies in reality. This guy, he just wants to be the leader. He wants to be in control and he will do anything to keep it. He has rejected the authoritative letters of John. These other teachers, he's refused hospitality and kicked people out of the church who have shown it which is exactly the opposite of what Gaius is known for doing. That's some heavy meat to carry. And so then John closes it out with this last piece of bread. And then it's an encouragement to Gaius and some insight on when you come across these problem people, how do you know if they're problem people or not? And how do you avoid people like Diotrephes? This is what it says in verse 11. He says, dear friend, don't let this bad example, Diotrephes, influence you. Follow only what is good. Can we say that together? Follow only what is good. One more time. Follow only what is good. Remember that those who do good prove that they are God's children, and those who do evil prove that they do not know God. Everyone speaks highly of Demetrius, as does the truth itself. We ourselves can say the same for him, and you know we speak the truth. Don't follow Diotrephes. This is a horrible example. Instead, pay attention to this guy named Demetrius. Why? I'm hearing nothing about awesome. Nothing but awesome about this guy. This is what truth looks like lived out. Right? If you're looking for leaders to follow, can I just give you like a really easy litmus test? Just look at the fruit of the lives that they live. Just, just look at the fruit of the lives they live. Does, does it have to be perfect? No. Not at all. It shouldn't be because then they're really faking. Life's messy, but does the character of the people that we follow, is that something we want to long for and to ascribe to? Say, I want that. I want to follow them as they follow Christ. If you're looking at leaders, look at the lives that they live and the ministry that's there. John says, judge them by their fruit. Good things have good outcomes. Bad things have bad outcomes. The evil that could be there, like, listen, and, and don't think that means good outcomes. And I've asked this a couple times to, to different people in conversations. Well, what does it mean to be a growing church? More numbers. Does that always mean we're, we're you know, growing? Because growing could be deep and wide. It doesn't have to just be wide. And it's too often we focus on all this wide, massive growth. And if we have more numbers, that would be great. Listen, we could be 500 people and two inches deep. There's no benefit to our culture with that. Is there? No, that's not going to produce lasting fruit. That's going to be trees that fall over. That's not Psalm 1 being planted by streams of living water. You will not grow that way. We need to grow deep and we will be fruitful. And so if you say, well, like people make decisions all the time, we'll have a bigger church if we do this. But if it's a bad decision, an evil decision, the ends never justify the means. You can't say, well, in the end, it was worth, you know, sacrifice. If, ah, the, the image that keeps coming to my brain is like, we got there, but if you turn around and you see that you're driving the bus and there's nothing but a, just a, a slew of bodies that you've run over to get to where you're going. I do not think that's the way of Jesus. He does not run over people to accomplish his goal. He invites people to accomplish the kingdom coming. And he invites the people that most of us want to push off the bus rather than invite on. This is what he does. He shows hospitality, comfort. He invites them in. You cannot look at success as more numbers, more budgets, that, that the most important position, that is not success. 
Do you want to know what success looks like? Success, I think, is summed up the best in the words of Jesus. Let's use scripture to interpret scripture. What does it mean? Well, the words of Jesus, I think, would be ringing through John's head of what does it mean to be a good leader. When Jesus tells a story, he's at a party with a bunch of people. And, and at this party, everyone, some of the most you know, impactful and influential teachers of the law are there. They invite them all over, and now they're jockeying for position and trying to figure out who sits where because where you sat. Who's at the head of the table? Who's the next? Who's this? And this is what Jesus says. In Luke chapter 14, in his biography, it says this. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed, and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then wait for your host to see you, and he'll come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. When John writes this letter to Gaius, I have to think this is on his brain. John's not writing saying, I I'm going to flex my authority over you. He could have like put everything in that letter and spread all the lies about Diotrephes he wanted, couldn't he? But he didn't. He showed humility and some integrity there to say, I'm not doing this because I don't want everyone to know this stuff. I just think this needs to be held accountable like Matthew 18 says. Like, I heard Jesus say that to me. Go handle things one-to-one. -one. I'm going to. But my letters aren't getting, and I need to make sure that you know I'm coming. We are given a call here to look at this one little one-hit wonder. What's the point of this? It's just a note of encouragement. It's a mutton MLT. Are we longing for positions of leadership? Are we longing for titles or for success to look a certain way? Or are we truly pursuing the cornerstone of our faith in Jesus, what he teaches in hospitality and caring for each other as best we can? Today, Crossbridge, you are part of the miracle that God is doing. We're going to open our trunks to people, which sounds like we're going to try to kidnap them. <laughs> but, Becky, how many trunks do we have? About 26. I read a story about Jesus where he was given a couple loaves and a fish, and he fed 5,000 people. I don't know how many people are going to come through, but I think that God is going to use you and me together. And from a place of humility where we open our trunks to the community and say, would you come and play? Would you come and enjoy? We just want to serve you and love you. We want to show hospitality at our, our home here at, Crossbridge, or at, at Kingsway. 
And we partner together by throwing so much candy, it's ridiculous, by having a budget that allows for us to throw this event together, and we, we partner together to do this. Why? Because we love our community, and we love each other, and we're doing this together. Amen? This is not just an event. This is us living out what Jesus says. This is our call. It's a privilege to do it together. I'm so excited for this afternoon. And this is why we celebrate communion at the end of every service, is to simply point us back to what Jesus did, where he did not long for a title, and yet Pilate said, right on that cross, king of the Jews. And all the Pharisees and all the people said, no, take that down. And he says, I will not take it down. That's his title. And everyone knew it. Did he claim that title? No, he did not. He referred to himself as the son of man. Today, we are his servants who remember that he gave his life up for us so that we can do the same for others. As we approach communion today, we do so humbly in awe of our Father in heaven who gave his son for us. If you're here and you have dedicated your life to Jesus Christ, you believe that he is the son of God, that he came to this earth, was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a perfect life, that he was crucified, that he was dead, buried, and rose again on the third day, and that he is ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father. If you believe in his teachings today, regardless of what tribe you come from or denomination, you are welcome to share communion. We do this together as a family under Jesus. But would you go asking the Lord, is there a place that I'm trying to become greater? Is there, is there a place where I'm trying to be more influential than you've called me? And instead, I need to just slow my roll and, and pick up a towel to serve instead of trying to dictate things my way. If there is something on your heart there, I would ask, for you to confess that before you approach the communion table. Would you stand with me? Jesus, we recognize that you've commanded us that when we gather to remember you as the focal point of everything and everything that we read in scripture points to you. You've given everything for us and all you have said I love you now come follow me you've not promised us all the health and the wealth but you have said put your trust in me put my kingdom first and everything will be fine it will be added to you whether you have a lot or a little don't worry you could do all things through me this is not about what we get out of a relationship with you but we stop and we pause and we say praise you Jesus bless you Holy Spirit, give us insight into how we can look like Jesus. At this time, I would invite you to receive communion at the tables. You can grab a cracker and dip it or prepackaged and come back to your seat and we will eat and drink together.